We began to consider how Jesus is unmasking, exposing that fundamental problem of unbelief. And now we come to verses 14 to 24, where we hear Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. Uh, He went up to the Feast of Tabernacles about uh, the middle of the week. And I think at this point, it's helpful to pause and notice something that I think is very significant, and that is much of Jesus' ministry took place in the midst of conflict and opposition. Wherever Jesus is present, there will either be adoration and faith in him, or there will be conflict and intense opposition to him. And what should strike us about this is that in the Gospels, I'm guesstimating, but I think this is pretty close, 99.9% of this conflict is not with pagan, irreligious people. The most intense conflict we see Jesus enter into is with fiercely religious people. He was at the Feast of Tabernacles. These were all religious people. They went to a religious biblical feast. In verses 14 to 24, he's addressing the most respected religious men of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And I would caution you against caricaturing the scribes and Pharisees. We almost view that as an insult to call someone a Pharisee. And yet we we look at these people, they were the biblical conservatives of their day. They were very concerned about the word of God, about the worship of God. And yet it is these people that have the most hatred and disdain for Jesus Christ. And that is because in the end, they wore the mask of man-made religion. On the surface, it looked like true biblical religion, but beneath the surface, it was no different than any other false religion. And we need to understand that in, in, in this world, there's only two kinds of religion. There's There's the religion of divine accomplishment that rests alone on what Christ has done. The true religion that that says man can do nothing apart from God, that we must rely upon him. Or there is the religion of human accomplishment. The religion of human accomplishment, which, which in some way places the emphasis on man's ability. It refuses to rest alone upon Christ and what he has accomplished. The religion of divine accomplishment or the religion of human achievement. And every other religion apart from the true religion is one of human achievement. And that religion of human achievement is is something that's subtle, and it can very easily creep into our lives. 
where we start to think that we have the power in ourselves to do things, where we want to give credit to ourselves, where we think that, yes, I'm doing okay. Yes, I get some things wrong here and there, but I'm doing okay. And friends, we need to look no further than the broader American church. Because frankly, much of the American church is masquerading as true Christianity. When in the end, it is propagating this religion of human achievement. We, if you listen to some of the the, the TV preachers, I hope you don't, but if, if you do and you listen, you will find that their so-called sermons don't sound much different than the motivational speakers of our day. It tells you that you can do it. You just need to try harder, that you're great, that you have the power within you. That's the religion of human achievement. And the tragedy is that it is a Christless religion that relies not on Jesus, but on the power of man. And we need to remember, it's, I think it's easy for us to point the finger out there. And although our assembly doesn't look like those examples I gave you, that these things can lurk in our heart. And Jesus, in his love and in his grace, comes to religious people and he pulls off this mask. And again, it's not to leave us without hope, but to lead us to a greater trust in him, to lead us away from ourselves to Jesus. You see, it's only by having Jesus pull off this mask of our man-made religion that we can truly see the glory of Jesus and find joy in him and look to him. But how do we recognize this mask of man-made religion? And it's, it's a sophisticated mask. It can look just like the true religion. And in this passage, Jesus highlights some characteristics of man-made religions in order that we might see it be convicted of it, and turn to him. And the first characteristic of this mask of man-made religion is that it speaks on its own authority, and it seeks its own glory. It speaks on its own authority, and it seeks its own glory. In verses 14 and 15, uh, we read that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And we're not given the content of Jesus' teaching on this occasion, but the, the emphasis here is that the, the Jewish leaders were astonished and surprised at Jesus' teaching. Because he had not gone to any of the rabbinical schools. He, he hadn't cited any sources. This is maybe a bit hard for us to understand, but when we'll hear Jesus answer, he's answering the questions in their minds. The, the Mishnah, which 
details the tradition of the Pharisees. Uh, in the Mishnah, it is said that the person who studied the scriptures but did not attend upon the rabbinical scholars is no better than one of the people of the land. They were struck by his mastery of the scriptures, but this was not an expression of admiration. What's behind their comments is who does he think he is citing the scriptures and not citing any sources? This is the thing that angered them. Where was their authority? Or where was Jesus' authority was the question. The more rabbinical sources you cited, the more impressed the, the teachers would be. Uh, if you've ever interacted with uh, Jewish people, you, you will, you'll still hear this sort of thing. They would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so taught this, but Rabbi so-and-so disagreed. And Rabbi so-and-so sort of took the middle ground here. And the, the more sources you can cite, the more respected you were. But Jesus didn't teach this way, and he then responds to this unspoken accusation. They were essentially saying, where do you think your authority comes from? You're not citing any sources. And Jesus responds in verses 16 to 18, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. That's his response to the unspoken question, where is your authority? Where are your sources? And Jesus is saying, I have the true ultimate source of truth. My Father in heaven is my source. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What Jesus is confronting here was that they thought, or the, that though they were accusing Jesus of speaking on his own authority, they were, he was essentially saying to them, no, you are the ones who are speaking on your own authority. Your sources, your traditions reside in the realm of this world. Your religion originates not with God, but with man. And that's a distinguishing mark of this man-made religion. It may say, like the Pharisees, that it values God's word. But in the end, it relies more on the sources of this world, and it does not find its direction in the word of the triune God. And again, I could cite again the example of churches who claim to have a sermon, which should be a proclamation of the word of God. And yet that quote, sermon, sounds like a motivational speech you would find from this world. But there's another mark, not only does it speak on its own authority, but man-made religion seeks its own glory. It seeks its own glory. This is what Jesus said. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. That's how we can recognize man-made religion, whether it be out in the world or lurking in our own hearts. It seeks its own glory. Jesus taught this many times in his ministry, and he brought it into sharp focus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that a characteristic of man-made religion is seeking its own glory. He said, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. It's the revealing question when whether we're evaluating our own lives or seeking to evaluate a church or a, or a ministry. Is it self-glory that's being sought or is it the glory of Jesus Christ? And it's, it's an amazing thing that even the Son of God who was worthy of all glory and praise, he repeatedly said that he did not come to seek his own glory. It comes out, I think, perhaps most clearly in John's gospel when he talks about how he came to do his father's will, to do what his father said. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we evaluate? How often do you hear someone talk about their church and it's more about all the stuff that they do and they talk about their church and their ministries, and there's very little talk of Christ. Are they seeking their own glory or the glory of Christ? And are we in our own hearts as we live our lives? Are we seeking glory for ourselves, for our families, or for Christ? And so it speaks on its own authority. It seeks its own seeks its own glory, but then secondly and lastly, we see that man-made religion, in the end, it breaks the law that it claims to keep. It breaks the law that it claims to keep. In verses 19 to 24, we see how these religious leaders, they were refusing Jesus' efforts to bring them to a deep conviction of their sin. And in verse 19, Jesus, he confronts them because they were congratulating themselves for keeping the law. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. I, I think we, it's hard for us to understand how, how confrontational that was to people who thought they had it together. None of you keeps the law. Then he says, why do you seek to kill me? 
And, and you'll notice, I mean, we already know there was a plot hatched to kill Jesus. But notice how they just skirt this and they act like Jesus is crazy for suggesting such a thing. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. This is a mark of man-made religion. It claims to be able to keep God's law, but in the end, it violates the very law that it claims to keep. Jesus points out that they were the ones who were breaking God's law. They were breaking the sixth commandment by trying to kill him. You see, the tragic irony of this belief that we can keep God's law is it ends up rejecting the one, the only one, who was able to keep God's law in our place. The only one who was able to die and bear the penalty for our law breaking. These men were refusing the one who alone possessed the righteousness that they desperately needed, the one who kept the law for them. In Galatians, Paul addresses this very problem. He said, if righteousness were attainable through the law, then Christ died for nothing. We don't need him. Jesus goes on to expose the hypocrisy of this man-made religion. Uh, look at verses 20 to 24. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the Father. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now Jesus makes a brilliant argument here. They wanted to kill Jesus because he healed that paralyzed man on the Sabbath day back in chapter 5. But Jesus makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says a, a, a child was to be circumcised on, on the eighth day, and if that eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath day, well, that, that was a no-brainer. You circumcised that child on the Sabbath day. And the point that Jesus is making here is if the ritual ceremony that symbolized the cleansing work of God, if the ritual ceremony that symbolized salvation, if that's okay on the Sabbath day, how is it that you're angry with me for healing the whole man? And if you remember, I, I argued from chapter 5 that that was sort of a two-stage miracle. Well, Jesus healed the man physically, then he came back and granted him saving faith. Why were they angry that Jesus performed the reality to which circumcision, circumcision pointed? 
if the symbol's permitted, why not the reality? And that is because in the end, man-made religion externalizes God's law. If we're going to say, yes, I can keep the law, then we have to externalize it to give ourselves some appearance of keeping it. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And that word appearances carries the idea of an outward appearance, something external. He's getting at their externalizing of God's law. His law is not superficial. It goes deep. It involves our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes, our actions. We should not be congratulating ourselves, but we should be undone as we contemplate the depth of the law of God. See, by charging them with violating the sixth commandment, he is showing the depth of the law of God and that no mere man can keep it. He says, none of you keeps the law. And the great tragedy here was the only one who ever did keep God's law was standing right in front of them. The one who kept the law to perfection. The one who died under the curse of the law. See, our great need is to be sensitive to the law of God. Sensitive to our sin in order that we run to the one who possesses the perfect righteousness that we need. You see, a superficial view of God's law will lead inevitably to a superficial view of Jesus. Without that deep conviction of sin, we will never have a deep sense of our need for the Savior. We will never see ourselves as lawbreakers who deserve death, but like these men, we will congratulate ourselves for being decent people. Friends, in the end, this man-made religion will not lead us to Christ, but away from him. And that is why he pulls this mask off. Jesus is reminding us, religious people, that the path of faith begins and continues with being unmasked and having our unbelief exposed, being convicted of our religious hypocrisy and then running to Christ and saying, Lord, you have unmasked me. I confess my sin to you. Forgive me and empower me to forsake myself and to trust in you fully. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray as we go and we begin a new week that you might strengthen us in our faith. Drive us out of ourselves to Jesus. Lord, forgive us for 
measuring ourselves by our efforts and thus demeaning the work of your Son. O oh Lord, forgive us and strengthen us. May we move forward with strength and confidence, not because of anything in us, but because the finished work of Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen.